As one of the most beautiful women of the 20th century, Elizabeth Miller was always catching the eyes of those around her. But what those passing by may not have seen was her talent. Elizabeth, later known simply as Lee, was an accomplished model, surrealist artist, and photographer, and later war photographer for the British edition of Vogue magazine. But as is the case with many brilliant artists, Lee held a dark past in one hand while pursuing an independent and remarkable life with the other. It's time we remember this nearly forgotten icon, today on the Gems of History. But not as much as you you see. What a is that Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, it's like the after credit scene. How did that come up? <laughs> Why does my brain work like that? We're talking about the well, probably one of the most famous war photographers of all time. Hey Kip, <laughs> do you want to sing a three and a half minute song about technology <laughs> at your wedding? Incredible movie. And then your brother's gonna come in on a white stallion. <laughs> yeah, what a movie. We need more movies like that. <laughs> Literally no plot. No. Like, there's no... It's the Seinfeld of movies. Nothing... Right. It honestly is. <laughs> but if Jerry was just like a curly-headed dork. High school student, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who lives in a farm. <laughs> Uncle Rico is Kramer, though. I do love By Uncle... By far. I do love Uncle Rico. He's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he just plays football instead of golf. Well, that and the guy that teaches the kung fu. Like, oh, those are top-tier... Absolute class. Top tier side characters <laughs> will cherish my heart forever. Like I can't think of a handful of movies where the side characters are as memorable as the main characters. And that's definitely one of them. I would even say more memorable. Like I can't quote like a Napoleon Dynamite phrase, but so I was like, "Oh, Tina, come get your freaking dinner, <laughs> you fat lord." You don't want a roundhouse kick to the face with these bad boys? Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what you shouldn't forget about though, Evan. It's Lee Miller. <laughs> that's right. That's who we're talking about today. <laughs> Excuse me. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me, as always, is... Evan Roosh. What if I just looked around? Like, I actually don't know who's joining us for this one. The bears on the blanket. <laughs> the bear, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have the Wisconsin side of the recording blanket out today. Yeah, we can't put the other one up because they... Packers lost. Didn't yeah. win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the Badgers did, even though the Badgers are not very good this year. Yeah, Wisconsin sports. This is your Wisconsin sports update. Um, da-da-dun, da-da-dun. The Falcons, actually pretty good. Pretty good. Can't, uh, well, I guess by this time, another game will have passed. Going to the Saints game. Yes. So oh, you be are? Excited. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, I'll be in Derek Carr's ear all the way in section 714. He's but, been playing terribly, so. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He, welcome to Thunderdome, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but I need him to throw to Chris Olave a lot so my fantasy team can win because I'm playing you this week, I'm pretty sure. So Oh, are we really? I think so. Oh yeah. my gosh. Loser. Dude, I'm trying to think of I'm, a bet on the on the spot. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what I saw. So we'll see. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So uh sports in Wisconsin are interesting to watch right now, I'd say. Yeah. I do love that my Sunday was six hours of just watching football. Yeah. But three of those got pretty sad. <laughs> and then the Monday night came and they're like, let's give them the worst games they've ever seen. Bro, Nick Chubb's knee. <laughs> Ooh. R.I.P. to that. Yeah, those look events. <laughs> when they gone. say that they can't show the replay on live TV because it's too bad, not a good sign. <laughs> I don't like that the only other time I've remembered that happening is Kevin Ware. Ooh. If you remember him. So if you're unfamiliar, uh don't don't look it up also put a guard for the louisville um cardinals i don't even know but regardless a basketball player louisville college team louisville college team um he took a jump shot ran out his leg and his leg said nope the leg said nope and the bone was like i want to be out of the skin (sighs) it is like (laughs) ingrained in my it's one of those things that you don't forget we'll never you can never get the image out of your head of that Mm -mm. yeah it was gruesome but that how did we get here? I told you we're, this is gonna be a three hour episode. Yeah, we're not talking be- about anything near close to sports today. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about a female who had quite a life, to say the least. She uh lived in the early twentieth century. Her dad was on the forefront of photography before it was really a thing, taught her everything she knew, and then she became a photographer in the worst war in history. 
We cover so many interesting stories and lives on this podcast. This is one that I'm extremely glad got brought up. <clears throat> so this was our listener uh, selected episode, and indeed. I truly would have had no idea no idea about this woman's life without the listeners. And it was so cool doing research on it because she had a pretty tough childhood and ended up being one of the most famous photographers of all time. Yeah, definitely. And it's crazy because like no one has no one brings her up when you talk about World War Two. Like mm-hmm. some of the images that we get of it are from her, but you never hear her name attached to them. You just see the picture and move on. So Yeah, that's so true. You and looking through her photography, like the different images that she's taken, like I know these. I know just about all. Like I've seen just about yeah. all of these. And she has range, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an understatement, that's for sure. But yeah, as Evan mentioned, this is our Patreon-selected episode for the month of September. It was suggested by Anna on the Patreon, so thank you for that. Uh, just before we get into the main topic today, I just want to remind you guys, as we have October coming up, if you guys have any spooky stories, scary stories, personal horror stories of any sort that you want to send in, then we can read them on our listener story slash creepypasta episode next month. Please send them in to our email, gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Um, other than that... And you can send those in to any of our social medias. Yeah, might as well plug everything while we're here. Plug... <laughs> Plug God. Uh, you can find us on X at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. Myself at what Evskies. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. It's probably a different order every single time I go through it. Um, as long as they're all there somewhere. Right. And like Jacob mentioned, Patreon uh, at Gems of History Podcast. Just give us a search and you'll be able to find us. Yes, sir. But without further ado, let's tell you about Lee Miller because. She deserves it. Yes, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Before becoming a fashion model and active combat photographer in the deadliest war in human history, Lee Miller was born as Elizabeth Miller on April 23, 1907 at 4.15 p.m. to parents Theodore and Florence Miller. And I thought I initially, I should say a lot of the research that I got for her childhood at least came from uh, her biography by a woman named Carolyn Burke, but I didn't have time to read the whole thing, so mostly used it for just her upbringing but her father was very detail oriented so he wrote down the exact time that she was born in a journal and everything and like her weight so we actually know all of those details which is not usually the case for a lot of the people that we cover that had to be such a funny scene at the birth like the mom is obviously doing her thing you know pooping out a baby and then the dad's like, oh, that's great. Hold on. I need to get my notebook. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> what time is it? Someone give me the time. My watch isn't working. Known as Lily, then Tay-Tay, Betty, and later Lee, Elizabeth's birthplace was Poughkeepsie, New York, which was a somewhat stagnant moral residence at the time, but it was at the same time a relatively bustling industrial center. It was a central location for the trains to go north to Albany and south to New York City, but the town leaders were... a keeping Poughkeepsie back by dwelling on their history as a way to keep the town relevant. And it became kind of this stagnant pool in the midst of a lot of revolution in that part of the America, uh, part of America. Amongst the town of 24,000, the Millers set themselves up as part of the upper crust of society. Theodore was the superintendent at the town's largest employer, which was the De Laval Separator Company, which used heavy machines to separate heavy liquids and solid matter from lighter liquids, like cream from milk. <laughs> That's my favorite thing, like just small business, businesses like that. It's like we do one specific thing, and that's it, and we're millionaires. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we keep this literal town afloat. And it's like, oh, you're going to take business trips back to Sweden so that right. you can go meet <laughs> all of the other people important in the company. Right, right. That's so, I mean, 
yeah, if you think about it, there's a company devoted to making the springs and pens, and like they have a patent on it. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> exactly described as quote a tall erect man with penetrating blue eyes. Oh, <laughs> he might have stepped out of a Horatio Alger novel. Quote end quote. Theodore was an enterprising man. That's a it's a lot of phallic references to describe this man. He's erect, enterprising, a tall, and tall. <laughs> a tall, erect man with penetrating blue eyes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Evan's <laughs> blushing. Yeah. Theodore, oh my stars. Theodore was born into a Quaker settlement, but Miller, the Miller family was one of the few who didn't fall in line with the religion, and later Theodore himself became an atheist and a progressive thinker, which is kind of surprising in the midst... I guess America was kind of revolutionizing morally at this time period, but for him to be an outward atheist is kind of unheard of in America before like 1970 right yeah people don't really think about that too much like it was very taboo to be outwardly against the church or god even in america in the 19 well in this case like the 1900s yeah like right at 1900 right so it's still very prevalent or like yeah prevalent that uh religion dominates this area especially the northeast of uh the united states but you have to give him some credit he this entire family just kind of goes on their own own strokes. Theodore came from a family of mechanically inclined people with a hardworking construction father and an engineering older brother. Theodore worked various jobs in manufacturing throughout his 20s and didn't settle down until he himself was 30. His wife, Florence McDonald, we know a little bit less about. She was born in Ontario, and her parents had died when she was young, so she moved in with other relatives. But aside from that, that's most of what we know, besides the fact that she became a nurse due to the family's impoverished status, because at the time, nursing was one of the few paths open to women from poor families. The two married in 1904 when Florence transitioned to a housewife in charge of the servants, and Theodore provided for the family while indulging his passion for photography. At home, each parent favored their child of the opposite gender. So Theodore doted on his little girl Elizabeth, while Florence treated their eldest son John as her favorite. However, it's so funny that's recorded in history. Right, exactly. That you had the favorite child. However, Florence showed John her love in a little bit of a different way by dressing the young boy in girls' clothing and putting bow ties in his hair until he was six. Oh, I was waiting for the number, and six is way too late. Way too old, yeah. Then Theodore pretty much forced her to be like, okay, you need to cut his hair, give him a boy's haircut. (laughs) Right, crew cut. Treat him like a boy. And here's a football. But it's funny because like, there's instances of serial killers where their parents will dress them like this Mm -hmm. and send them to school that way, so it's a a good thing that he didn't end up like that. It could have... As far as I know, I didn't read anything that outwardly said, hey... Her brother ended up being a serial killer, so... Yeah, those situations are always a little dicey. He probably ended up dying in the war. Yeah. Honestly. But actually, though... (laughs) (laughs) From a young age, Elizabeth disdained dolls and only held them if her father wanted her to pose with one for photos. And speaking of photos, Theodore had a tendency to enjoy taking nude photos of ladies in his life, at first getting his wife to pose nude... And at as early as 18 months, he was taking nude photos of Elizabeth, which may sound odd at first, but in reality isn't too odd for a parent to do out a child that young. Yeah, that uh, was definitely a point of note in the research leading up to this episode that they had to make the distinction of basically judge it for yourself if that's yeah. creep or not. Um, I mean, I don't really have an opinion I mean, he it. does continue with that trend until oh, she's in her like until, until way, she's like six, seven years old. Yeah, so that, yeah, until way too late. Then it gets a little weird. Yeah, these parents just like straightened up when they turned six. <laughs> the first six years, apparently, they had to pact. We can be as weird as we possibly can. But when they hit six, we're going to straighten like, things up. It's like the rumor that cops have to fill a quota at the end of the month, so they start pulling They're everyone pulling over. over. So that's yeah. what they did with their kids when they turned six. Right. Those who looked at 
Theodore's photo albums later showed how much he preferred his daughter in the amount of photos that he had of her versus her brothers. So it was a very obvious favoritism from him that he liked Elizabeth the most. And this kind of did rub off on her older brother, John, who always thought, why does she get away with everything and not really have to do much chores or anything like that? Mm -hmm. So they did have a little bit of animosity, but overall got along together well. What? Don't know if you know this. Were the brother pictures nude as well? I don't know. Mm. I don't think so, but I have no idea, honestly. Yeah, I haven't. I didn't see anything in my research. Like, I saw that, yeah, they take photos of all the kids, but Lizzie or Lee was always primarily nude, but I didn't see any distinction that the brothers were were nude. Yeah, I think it was mostly women that he yeah. did it with, so... I mean, he had a he had a favorite type he, of photography, to say the least. Right. Shortly after her younger brother was born, the family moved from the city to a 165-acre farm that started as a cottage, but was soon built into a large home by Theodore. And this area gave the kids new area to roam, especially Elizabeth, and that gave her the chance to explore independently, as well as try her hand at imitating her father's inventiveness. At the same time, young John was doing the same by building a small train for the kids to ride on the hills in the backyard, which all of the kids enjoyed, leading to Elizabeth's continued childhood of quote-unquote unladylike behavior in the eyes of her mother. In addition, she loved to tinker with machines, take them apart, and see how they worked, and she pretty much dressed in more boyish clothing throughout a majority of her adolescence. She would climb trees, she camped, she went fishing, and generally she would do everything that her brothers and the other boys did. But eventually, Florence pushed Elizabeth to dress more like a lady, using it as a sort of punishment for Elizabeth's unruly behavior. You ate the last, or you snuck a cookie out of the jar. Here's a skirt. <laughs> Put on a dress for once. Yeah. Here's a bow. Put <laughs> right. it in your hair. Here's a bow. Here's a pink shirt. That's it. I can't put these bows in your brother's hair anymore, so now you have to Yeah, them. Dad raised a fit, so. <laughs> the young Elizabeth was rebellious by nature, aided even more by a series of books known as the Goop Books, which were intended to be used as examples to show bad behavior and thus a guide of what not to do, but which made these naughty behaviors look even more enticing to young Elizabeth. And no, it's not Goop as in... Gwyneth Paltrow's company. This is a little before that. Oh, God. I always forget that that's the name of her company <laughs> of things, of yeah. products. Her armpit candles. Yes. Outside of a few times, Elizabeth in her later life didn't really talk about her parents much, but from all accounts, her childhood was mostly a happy one. Despite her father being somewhat described as a tyrant at home, instituting rigid rules for the kids to follow, he was a strict but fair parent. When the kids misbehaved, they would be sent to their rooms. When Theodore was home, he taught the kids to write with both hands to make them ambidextrous and focused on teaching the kids in things which could be recorded rather than in religious ideas. Basically, as far as I could tell, he was never physically abusive or anything as much as he was just gone a lot for work. A lot of Theodore's trips were to Sweden, where his company was based out of, which meant that he had Swedish friends who would come and play and visit with the family in New York every so often. And one of those families would come to play quite a large part in young Elizabeth's life. But as far as parenting around the house goes, in the book, in Carol, Carolyn Burke's biography, he, she describes him as a tyrant, but it doesn't really seem like he did all that much to deserve it. I mean, he instituted, like, if I ring this bell a certain number of times, it's for one of you kids to have to come back. Like, it was one for John the eldest, two for Elizabeth, three for Eric the youngest. Oh. So it's just, like, stuff like that, which was like, if you didn't listen, then you had to go to your room or do extra chores or something. Basic, a basic household. Right, and parenting was a lot different. A hundred years ago. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Right, like, not giving, like, a good or bad credence, but you just have to understand, like, it looked a lot different. Yeah. Kids' feelings were not taken into account. So, basically, they were raised more by Florence because Theodore right. was just gone a lot. Mm -hmm. So, while in Sweden in 1913, the Millers stayed with a young couple known as the Kajerts. The Kajerts would later move to America to work at the De Laval's American branch and would often visit the Millers in New York. 
the wife of the couple named Astrid came to grow very fond of Elizabeth and loved having her around, and Elizabeth returned that fondness and even stayed with the Swedish couple when Florence was recovering from an illness. While staying with the family, Elizabeth made friends with the boy upstairs and also came to know Astrid's brother-in-law, who they referred to as Uncle Bob, who would pretty much just join them for meals every so often, so she came to know him. According to Astrid, the visit was going really well, stating, quote, It is strange how a child can make you young again. She really is the most important person in the house at present, but I will try my best not to let the gentleman spoil her, end quote. Unfortunately for Elizabeth and for the Kajerts, one of those gentlemen would spoil her, but not in a positive way. At the age of seven, Elizabeth was left home while Astrid went shopping. She was left in the care of a male friend, either Uncle Bob or a nephew of the Kajerts who was on leave from a tour of duty. The details are scarce since the Millers and the Kajerts barely talked about it, but what is known for sure is that this male caretaker raped young Elizabeth. She was rushed back to Poughkeepsie, but was also rushed out of her adolescence. Her personality was forever changed by this event, beforehand seen smiling and happy in photos and afterwards looking much more depressed, and her brother John later recounted that his sister was never the same. The Millers attempted to help her by taking her to a psychiatrist, but dealing with trauma like this wasn't as advanced as it is today, and she was simply told that the damage wasn't permanent and that sex and love are two separate things. But for Elizabeth, the lack of permanence was a lie, because this sexual assault had left Elizabeth with gonorrhea, which would stick with her for almost her entire life. Yeah, this is just extremely heartbreaking. Um, It truly, I mean, changed her entire mindset, entire outlook on the world. Like you mentioned before, her brothers and family even distinctly noticed that, I mean, it's not the same person. And that's at seven. Yeah. And... I mean it <clears throat> excuse me. I mean it shapes the mindset for I mean I'm I'm sure the rest of her life. I mean being in relationships going forward, you know. It changes changes I'm assuming changes everything. So that was a extremely heartbreaking thing to read in the research leading up to this because I mean, it's 7 years old. It forces you to do a lot of growing up, a lot of like a lot of growing up very quickly. Oh, right. And especially in this time period where, as I mentioned, like psychiatry wasn't near even close to where it is today. So nobody really knew how to deal with this. Right. Yeah. The psychiatrist, like you mentioned, essentially said, well, it's not permanent trauma. Like, yeah, that's permanent trauma. Yeah. And then you have to subject your seven-year-old daughter to taking a bunch of these like prototypical treatments to try and heal her of this std that she has now and i i don't think until after the 50s was there really like a treatment that worked well Mm -hmm. so it pretty much until she was in her 50s in her 60s even probably did they come up with something that could have worked so yeah yeah, it's just a very sad and tragic turn of events in Mm -hmm. her life After the early end of her childhood, Elizabeth became much more moody around the house. Instead of venting her anger at home, Elizabeth eventually took to running away to her friend Minnow's house. At home, Florence began to stay around the children in order to keep an eye on Elizabeth, teaching her all of the pastimes befitting of a woman of her station, like gourmet cooking, jewelry making, and piano lessons. At the same time, she enjoyed the pleasures of country life with her brothers, like riding the family donkey Ginny. Eventually, she was sent off to school where classmates described her as a show-off and her teachers called her spoiled. And it didn't take long for Elizabeth to figure out that she didn't like formal education. Instead, she enjoyed learning from her father and by experimenting with things herself. The photos that Theodore was bringing back from his travels made her long for adventure, while the entire family would debate economic policy and philosophy at the dinner table. But what Elizabeth was truly drawn to was photography and performance art. So after, after that traumatic event, it's not a surprise that her attitude shifts. Like, mm-hmm. at, she becomes more testy at home. Like I said, she had to grow up way faster than she should have. And so it didn't let her get to her teenage years before she had that rebellious phase. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit it perfectly. I mean, you grow up, like, you, you are 
in your mind a grown-up at that point. Like, your entire mindset switches. Right. And even if you don't understand what happened to you, you're going to eventually, and then it's going to really change everything. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hard to trust people. Yeah. Well, I mean, let alone people in authority, like, listening to a teacher probably, um, I imagine, gets tougher. Right. And, but it is around this time, too, that she started to discover what her true passions were. And so mm-hmm. it's from an early age that she really gets into photography, which is, as is the reason why we know her as well as we do, is going to stick with her the rest of her life. So Elizabeth was soon regularly attending what were known as photo plays, which were pretty much an early precursor to full-length films. We kind of talked about this in the Hollywood episode. It's just kind of those really short reels that you can go see in the theaters. Minnow and Elizabeth would get tickets to these from Minnow's father, and by the end of World War I, these films transitioned into more sexually charged pictures, which gave the girls new icons to imitate in their physical lives. But what the two really gravitated towards and wanted to do was to get into writing for these movies. Elizabeth attempted to get into writing through school, but her teachers said that her writing lacked unity. And by age 14, Elizabeth was caught between her own will and trying to put on the appearance of a proper woman. Eventually, she was expelled from school and sent to a Quaker school where, surprise, surprise, she still didn't fit into that system of learning. Well, yeah, the, the religious school was n- probably not the option here. Yeah, it's a, sending her from a school that's probably less strict to a school that's way more strict. To the Quakers. Isn't, isn't a good move for yeah. a kid that hates like structured learning classes. Right. Here, Elizabeth deliberately broke the rules using swear words and devising practical jokes, like putting sugar on the floor outside of their dorm room to hear the woman coming to do bed checks so that they could kind of have a warning system. Respect. After realizing school wasn't going to work for her, Theodore eventually pulled her out of school and took her to Puerto Rico, saying that he could teach her some things on that quote-unquote vacation. Not a bad vacation, not a bad school trip. Nope. Eventually, Elizabeth did finish her schooling at a school called Putnam Hall, and afterwards she began to read everything that she could at a local used bookstore, which began her journey into the world of free thinkers. A couple of these free thinkers helped Elizabeth get her acting debut in a staged version of a play called The Girl from the Marshcroft, which was adapted from a Swedish novel. She began to get more into dancing at this point, but as the 1920s came, Elizabeth longed to do more and to escape her small-town upbringing. The rise of the flapper movement saw Elizabeth change her style and become even more of a muse for her father's photography. But while she shared in the atmosphere of being an object of desire, she wanted to be an artist and not just a pretty face. So she moved to Paris for a short time in the mid-1920s, explored her sexual freedom, and worked under Hungarian artist Ladislas Med... Med... Hmm... Medjis, <laughs> I think? Medguys? I, I always don't know, know how I, this one's pronounced. I always know when... Like, they, they got you. Yep. <laughs> when you drop a... Hmm... <laughs> I, I, and there's like three accents in his last name, so I have no clue how it's... And it's Hungarian, so oh. <laughs> as we learned in the Elizabeth Bathory episodes, Hungarian names, notoriously not easy. <laughs> Insanely hard. Yeah. Like, one of the most underrated, difficult pronunciations to undertake. Yeah. But while living in Paris, eventually her family visited, and she was forced to kind of straighten up her act and then finish her studies while they were there. And once her studies were over, she returned back to America with her mother. But upon returning home, she got sick for a full month. And after recovering enough to get around again, she began to look for a new path to walk. Oof. Do we know what she was sick of? All of the things that I read pretty much said that she was, like, super depressed after Uh, having leave Paris. And it just kind of took a toll physically on her as well. Yeah. So I don't know if that's fully the case or if just, I mean, travel back then wasn't easy either, so... Yeah, just traveling true. back and forth probably has a toll that it mm-hmm. takes on you. Yeah, there wasn't the risk of being kidnapped yeah. as high or as much here. Plus, but, I mean, she still has that CDs right. that she's dealing with right, on right. and off. So, but yeah, uh, her first exploring into Paris, I think, says a lot about where her head was at mm-hmm. after growing up in this very, I don't want to say like overbearing society that she lived in but it was just Mm -hmm. kind of like not as 
permissive as Paris would be at this time. Right. Yeah. It's like the freedom, the new life that she probably wanted. And I would hate having to leave that too. Yeah. And also the fact that this is when she already starts exploring, like going out and having sex with other people mm-hmm. and having affairs with all these people. It, I think it says a lot about how she wants to reclaim her sexuality in a way, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but I think that's got to have something to do with it. The fact that she didn't have that when she was a child, and mm-hmm. now it's her opportunity to kind of have permission from herself to do things that she didn't have back then. You know? Right, right. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So while looking for a new path to walk in life, she ran into quite an opportunity. By chance, in 1927, Lee met publisher Conde Nast, who is the man responsible for small titles such as Vanity Fair, Vogue, and The New Yorker. Yeah, I've heard of them. (laughs) A little important. Yeah. An encounter on the streets in Manhattan in which Nast saved Lee before stepping in front of a car led to Lee's first break into the fashion world. And in the same year, her face was on the cover of Vogue as an illustration by a man named George Lepop. Yeah, that, that origin story is straight out of the movies. Yeah. Like, Getting saves woman back. from, yeah. Yeah, like, all the retellings are like, he pulled her back before stepping in front of a car and she collapsed into his arms and he saw how beautiful she was and offered her a job. Oh, okay. Sure, why not? <laughs> Good Man, for her. I need to start collapsing into people's arms. <laughs> yeah, right. By 1928, Lee was photographed for the publication by Edward Steichen, but soon Lee's image was used for advertising without her consent, and she pretty much needed to find a new career path because she wasn't going to make any money anymore. Steichen then recommended that she go study with surrealist and avant-garde photographer Man Ray if she truly wanted to get into photography. And for those of you wondering, no, this isn't Man Ray from Spongebob. (laughs) (laughs) Which is all I could think about whenever I saw that. Boo. (laughs) That is great. A year later, she had moved back to Paris and at age 24 had begun working at Man Ray's studio as an assistant. She pretty much just showed up, said, I'm working for you now. And she's like, okay. Look at me. I am the assistant now. I'm beautiful. Yes. Eventually, their professional relationship turned into a romantic one, with Lee acting as Man Ray's muse to help inspire his art. And while working with him, Lee helped to create Man Ray's solarization technique, in which the black and white hues of photos are reversed. Apparently, this happened when she accidentally turned the lights on in the darkroom while developing photographs. Yeah, that is one of my favorite stories. Like, just a whole new way to develop photos by accident. Yeah. (laughs) I guess that she thought she saw a mouse in the darkroom, and so she went to go instinctively flip the lights on and then realized immediately and just shut them off right away. Oh, I would would do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, she birthed an entirely new form of photography, so. Shout out that that mouse, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the mouse was the reason. Right. During this time, Miller fell into a... During this time, Lee fell into a circle with modernists like Pablo Picasso and Salvador Dali. Have you ever heard of them? Yeah, just the biggest. It always blows my mind that uh, Pablo Picasso was in the like born in the 1900s. If you would have told me at any other time, um, I would have said the Renaissance. Yeah, right. Which would have been hundreds of years off. Well, and you just all of these people just get to meet each other. Like he's just around. Yeah. You can just go hang out with him if you want. It's like Forrest Gump, where he (laughs) just meets and does everything incredible for a decade. Right. (laughs) At one point in 1930, Lee appeared in a film called The Blood of a Poet as a statue. And this was kind of the first time that the world got to see her entire body because she was nude from the torso up. So this is already the beginning of that side of her career as a muse for not only Man Ray, but for other artists as well. 
Around this time, Lee began to challenge surrealism and femininity with her art, like her piece known as Severed Breast from Radical Mastectomy. You want to guess what it showed, Evan? Chicken breasts. (laughs) No. Oh. It showed two amputated human breasts served on dinner plates. Oh, well. It was meant to challenge the desire of women's bodies by turning it on its head. Bon appetit. But this was kind of her first very controversial, I guess, controversial and noticed piece of work. I would say for sure. I mean, when you look at the year that that was published, no one was ready for photos of breasts. Yeah, exactly. In any other way, that would be like, well, if you look at this, you're going to hell. Yeah. Like, this is terrible. Well, and everyone that she's known that's helped her in her artistic endeavors has been misogynistic in the way that they do it. Mm. So, I mean, this was kind of her way of biting back at that atmosphere and that culture that she was a part of. So, At the same time, she continued to work for Man Ray, often posing nude for him at his request. But after three years with a jealous and misogynistic Man Ray, Lee moved back to New York and established a photography studio with her brother, Eric. Did a little bit of reading into Man Ray. This guy is a freak. Like, oh, yeah? Like, in his personal life, at least. Like, artistically, he had a lot of really cool stuff, but he was very sadomasochistic in his, like... In the his way off that, the field stuff, yeah, let's call it. <laughs> um, to say the least. Oh. So it, in he, it's in his autobiography that he wrote about himself. He talks about this. Okay, like he fully admits to the fact that his ex-wife, who was with another guy in the same building that he lived in, came over one day, and he just started like yelling at her and took like followed her back to her room and beat her with a belt. Oh my and, god! Like told her show your new husband the marks that I've left on you. And, like, he viewed it as art. Like, he viewed it as the way he was leaving art on something. So this guy had a, a lot of stuff going on. Oh, and, God. But, like, before that incident, that ex-wife came over and pretty much beat him up and then, like, had sex with him. And he was, like, so into it. So, yeah, this guy's weird. Just You know what? The human mind is something crazy i can't imagine just, getting my ass whooped and then being like come give 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 me a smooch he was super into it wow. yeah there's this little sidetrack that i went on it's one of those things not everyone should have a biography <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that was the guy that lee was with for a little while and he got really jealous because she was like one of the first girls that didn't really like stick to him like glue i guess you could mm-hmm. say like she was her own very independent person so when he would not see her for a while he'd like write her these letters talking about how sad he was that he wasn't seeing her and yeah oh, he, was, poor guy. he was very much in love with her and she was not, not in, into it, yeah. in love with him in that way after establishing this photography studio in new york with her brother after only a year she got to do her own solo exhibit at the julian levy gallery in new york which played a large role in surrealist and avant-garde art in new york so it's kind of a big deal that she finally got to present her own work for once instead of just being part of someone else's yeah it's super incredible that she opened her own studio too like that's an extremely difficult thing to do and for her to be successful and to get to this platform it's extremely impressive it's also cool that she did it with her brother yes that is cool But this business only lasted for about two years because by the mid-1930s, Lee had married an Egyptian businessman named Aziz Aloy Bey, and they moved to Cairo together. She apparently met him at a party and decided to marry him, and then the couple went and honeymooned in Niagara Falls before returning to Egypt where they went on expeditions into the desert to find unexplored or undiscovered civilizations. They didn't find any. I was about to say, did they find any? (laughs) No. There's claiming they're the, there's claiming to have like found the pyramids just because they were the first people to like take pictures take, of them. Yeah, but this is another very spontaneous decision in her life. Yeah. And this, oh my gosh. Yeah. This moment, these moments kind of mark her probably late teenage to early to late twenties. Mm-hmm. She's just very spontaneous and kind of does whatever she feels in the moment. Right. Yeah. Just that traveling soul really just wants to get out there and see things. That's how you gotta be to be an artist, I guess. So. However, in Egypt is where Lee found some of her biggest successes as an avant-garde artist. She took photos of the empty desert with one of her most famous works coming in this time period, known as A Portrait of Space, which shows the endless sky and desert through a ripped screen on a door. 
It's such a cool picture. It is very cool. So she's, and if you, I probably should have said, like, if you don't know what avant-garde or surreal art is, it's just kind of, it's weird art, I guess you could call it. It's, it doesn't stick to the same themes as traditional art does. It's more impulsive. And most artists say that it's a way to express yourself in a moment, like mm-hmm. whatever emotion you feel at that time or whatever inspiration you have in that moment that's what inspires your art. It doesn't have to make sense. Then people can interpret it the way they want. Yeah, it's a really cool way to, I mean, it's also new at the time, but it's a completely new and cool way to convey emotion. Like Picasso was also one that, you know, his paintings conveyed a ton of emotion, a lot of it being like more depression and uh, stuff like that. Whereas this photography, especially her war stuff, captures the moment incredibly well yeah and it still leaves up for interpretation for different things so it is a very cool style of photography yeah and if you want an example think of like the melting clock painting that Mm. most of you have probably seen that's an example of surrealist art like it just it doesn't really make sense if you just look at it but like there's a lot of stuff in there that carries meaning so yeah you need to look at it for a while yeah just 10 seconds and oh neat and each person is going to interpret it a different way so Mm. that's kind of the cool part about it that's kind of the cool part about all art i guess kind of cool part about our podcast yeah you could hate us that's the fun part or you could love us preferably the second i preferably the second (laughs) leave us five star reviews please yes this escape to egypt didn't last lee very long either though and she eventually moved back to paris however the constant disconnect between the escapism that she felt in egypt and the reality of paris would stick with her for years and inform the most influential part of her career when she worked as a war photographer in active combat zones But before that, Lee became involved with surrealist artist and author Roland Penrose, whom she traveled with to places like Greece and Romania before she moved to London to be with him in 1939. And just as she arrived, the city was beginning to feel the true effects of World War II. While living in London, Lee met Audrey Withers, the British editor of Vogue, and she told Audrey of the desire she had to be a photojournalist. The two established a relationship, and Lee began to publish photo essays in Vogue, seizing an opportunity to transform the fashion magazine into an outlet for serious news. Lee became a correspondent for Vogue and attached to the U.S. Army, working together with photographer David E. Sherman, who worked with Life magazine and was an established war photographer himself. Throughout the conflict, Lee was constantly on the forefront of some of the most dangerous scenarios. At the beginning of the 1940s, Lee was present for the Blitz, which was an intense bombing campaign by Nazi Germany against the UK that lasted for around eight months. In 1944, she was present for the Battle of St. Malo, or St. Malo, which saw the first use of napalm bombings. And this one was kind of interesting because she had an interesting quote about it. Apparently, she wasn't supposed to be there when it was very like in upheaval it wasn't supposed to be a war zone it was supposed to be kind of peaceful but then when she arrived there's just all of this action going on and she kind of got terrified mm-hmm. and the way she calmed herself down was she told herself nobody made you come here that is true like, that's what she told herself to calm herself down she's like you did this because you want to be here right she willingly did sign up but talk about seizing an opportunity to make a name for yourself in the photography world vogue was i mean just they had no way or idea or process or even someone to go and capture photos of the war and at the time war was all the war was all people wanted to hear about yeah they they weren't concerned about fashion or anything they were like are my sons gonna come home yeah exactly so her stepping in was pretty much her saying i'll be the reason why you can change into that kind of serious coverage Mm mm-hmm After St. Malo, Elizabeth would go on to witness the aftermath of D-Day, the liberation of Paris, in which she was the first American soldier to go visit Picasso afterwards, the Battle of Alsace, and the liberation of Nazi concentration camps at Dachau and Buchenwald. She held prestige as one of only a few U.S. Army women photographers at the time who actually saw combat, and by some accounts possibly the only woman photographer on the front lines. According to Lee herself, quote, I became, I think, the first woman war correspondent. I was there as a photographer, not as a writer. 
You know, the old cliche, one picture is worth a thousand words. I knew all of the American war correspondents. There were no men, or there were men, but no women in the European theater of war, and I wanted to do something, so I invented the job. They asked me what the rules should be, and I said, just treat me like one of the boys, which they did. That was long before women's lib, and I felt like a one-woman brigade, end quote. Yeah, that's, that's a very impactful quote, I would say. Like, she literally just invented her job. Yeah. Invented this uh, method, this new role for women to, let's say, I mean, contribute to the news and contribute to uh, the spread of information and keep people updated, which is extremely cool. Yeah. It's definitely, like, all of these trailblazing people, mm-hmm. when they see that there's something missing in a certain sector of any, anything in humanity, they're just like, oh, I'll just, I'll just do it. I can do that. And that's yeah. what she did. This ambition would lead Lee all around Europe, eventually bringing her to lodge in the home of Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun in Munich, photographing Hitler's house in flames on the eve of Germany's surrender. Which is crazy. Absolutely wild crazy like life just is so weird like the house happened to be on fire i mean a lot of the things were on fire but like that happened to be on fire right when she was taking a picture on the eve of the surrender insane and can how do you get from studying in paris just hanging out with some photographers and artists to being in hitler's house i I totally glossed over that part like she was just (laughs) it's crazy After moving deeper east into Europe, Lee bore witness to the intense and harrowing scenes of children dying in Vienna, the struggles of peasant life in post-war Hungary, and eventually the execution of Hungarian Prime Minister Laszlo Bardasi. However, despite her variety and expression through her war photography, with images of falling stat- fallen statues representing the fall of ideals brought about by the people who had raised them in the first place, countered by images of SS guards floating in sunlit water, kind of hit everything and anything all at once i definitely encourage uh the listeners to just scroll through her different photos that she has the last one that you mentioned with the ss soldier floating in the river is haunting yeah it's so like we talked about surrealism being capturing a moment like this is obviously in black and white but you can kind of tell it's a beautiful day in a nice little creek. Yeah. But there's this dead body in it. Yeah. And it's, it's very haunting, very, very, for lack of a better word, of a photo of someone dead. Cool. Yeah. In another case, Lee recounted flying over France and noting the architecture and the trees that she saw, but later on that visit remembers taking a photo of a soldier who was barely recognizable underneath his bandages because he wanted to see how funny he looked. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps this contrasting style between the terror of what carnage war can bring on such a picturesque setting is why some of her photos are so well remembered from the war today. But Lee didn't seek out these horrors to exploit them, stating in a letter to Audrey Withers, quote, I usually don't take pictures of horrors, but don't think that every town and every area isn't rich with them, end quote. Oh yeah, especially the, in Hungary, like the peasant life, like they had no food yeah in that entire country well and there was people that tried to go through hungary there was a guy who escaped from mm-hmm. a concentration camp and he got to hungary and those and austrian kind of areas like east and he said they're gonna come and do the same thing to you guys you have mm-hmm. to do something to prepare and they he didn't they didn't listen to him yeah. and so then the same thing happened in those areas and they didn't recover as well so no yeah it's very tragic circumstances that she's just kind of walking into so as she stated lee didn't usually take pictures of horrors but sometimes she did sometimes instead of inanimate objects helping her represent the hopelessness and destruction of war she used graphic scenes with human subjects aside from the ss guard mentioned just before lee shot a series of photographs of nazi official deputy mayor ernst kurt leipzig and his family after they had all committed suicide One of the most haunting is the image of Regina Liso, Leipzig's daughter, who died by cyanide poisoning while laying across from her parents. According to Lee's son, who commented on her work later on, quote, 
Lee's surrealist eye was always present. Unexpectedly among the reportage, the mud, the bullets, we find photographs where the unreality of war assumes an almost lyrical beauty. On reflection, I realize that the only meaningful training of a war correspondent is to first be a surrealist, then nothing in life is too unusual, end quote. I mean, that's the perfect way to describe her photos of what she sees in these cases. Like, she walked into no entire family committing suicide, and one being a young daughter, and I forget the who described it, but a description of the photo of the daughter was like, she looks, like you know she's dead from cyanide poisoning, but like she still looks like healthy and youthful. Like that's one of the daunting things about a photo like that. That's a dead body, but it's still like a child full of youth and, you know, what could have been. And it's, I've used the word haunting multiple times, but wow, is that a powerful photo? Right. And one of the comments that I think Lee made herself was like, her teeth were so white. Yes, like thank you. It's, yeah. it's just the normalcy of such an unreal scenario. Right. And that's what her photos capture so well, is just that stark contrast between the two opposing things going on. I was trying to find the story of like how she was even able to get that photo, meaning I'm sure she wasn't the first person on the scene, I'm assuming. I, I don't I know that she like had time to pose the bodies in different ways right when she did get there right but i don't know if she was the if they just kind of were clearing a house or something and they kind of found him there and then they took the opportunity before the soldiers came in right i don't know but maybe the soldiers told her like hey you might want to take photos of this and then they just kind of let her in so, i know that's i'm just so curious about that part of it but i just couldn't find anything i mean she was a soldier technically right. so she was one of the guys mm-hmm But speaking of unusual and lyrically beautiful, one of the most famous photos involving Lee Miller wasn't one that she had taken. Instead, it was one that her partner, David Sherman, took of her. On the very day of Hitler's suicide, although they were not aware of it at the time, Sherman and Miller found themselves in the apartment of Hitler. In the hours following the liberation of Dachau, Lee stripped off her clothes, left her dirty boots on the clean white bath mat, and sat in the tub next to a framed picture of Hitler on the edge of the bath. Sherman took a photo of her, which he said represented, quote, the last of the Hitler myth, end quote. In the photo, along with others taken of Lee throughout her stint in the military, you can also see that she has given up the pristine and glossy look of her fashion modeling days and has become one of the grunts in the fields. She had finally become the artist, not the muse. But this is probably... If you have seen Lee Miller, this might be the only photo that you've seen of her, Mm -hmm. if you haven't looked her up specifically. But yeah, it's literally her sitting in Hitler's bathtub, like staining the rug that was perfectly clean with a photo of him on the bath. Kind of a statue of a naked lady to the right. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's a statue of, ah, I don't want to get this wrong. I want to say it's Persephone, but I don't know for sure. Mm. But yeah, it's, uh, it kind of shows that he's, he can't do anything anymore. You know, he's yeah, he's done. He's, he's gone. lost. Like mm-hmm. Hitler is no more. He's not this all-powerful god. This woman is dirtying his bathroom. What a weird I got I gosh, I can't imagine just walking again into Adolf Hitler's house and getting into his bathtub. Yeah, just being like, "Hey, let me let me get in there." Yeah. I mean, that this is absolutely one of the photos that like I recognize but had no idea it was her. Right. But you can really truly see that she is more rugged looking. Mm-hmm. She's not this pristine, beautiful woman that she was when she was in her teenage years and in her twenties. She like they they said that she really lived the life of a GI while she was out on the battlefields. Oh yeah, like that's a hard life to live. Yeah, it's when not, you're on the road, not putting on makeup and taking showers every day. So yeah, she she really dedicated herself to her art. Along with taking on her new role and leaving her past behind, Lee was also important in dispensing useful pieces of information to the public. In one telegram to Audrey Withers, she wrote, quote, and this first part's in all caps, I implore you to believe this is true. I hope Vogue will feel that it can publish these pictures, end quote. With this message, Lee sent her photographs of Buchenwald and Dachau, which bore witness to the atrocities committed there by the Nazis during the war. 
for Americans and British audiences who were mostly unaware of the human suffering taking place in these camps, the photos served as cold, hard evidence of what many believed was simply war propaganda up until that point. Isn't that crazy to think about? The, one of the greatest, most horrific atrocities of humankind and people. For, I mean, to be quite frank, they didn't have proof yet. But you actually had to have a conversation about whether the Holocaust was real. Yeah. And I think I think it makes sense though. You Yeah, if you didn't like, As a human, it. you don't want to believe that something like that is going on. Right. Like, you don't want to believe that he's just sending trains of people to die. Right. You don't want to believe that they're conducting experiments on people like twins. Yeah. It's just system it's literally a systematic genocide yes you don't you just don't believe that one man could have the power to orchestrate something like that you know yeah and the hate for it too yeah exactly but i mean there's still people today that believe the holocaust never happened so no well, those people are wrong exactly uh I'll, I'll give them a message here when the american edition of vogue was printed it came with a simple and direct message believe it which is so like i love that like that's so impactful that's so like short and sweet like chef's kiss yeah that's all you need and then the photos kind of tell the story like she said photos worth a thousand words so yeah but once the war was over so was most of lee's career lee miller continued to photograph celebrities for vogue for a couple years after the war ended but soon left the publication afterwards she returned to britain to be with roland penrose Many say that despite escaping the war alive, it still counted Lee Miller as one of its victims. Her mental health suffered afterwards, with Lee dealing with clinical depression and almost certainly post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I mean, she saw, she was right there with, I mean, the troops that saw and experienced these unbelievably horrific scenes. Like, that will have an effect on you. I mean, just, even if she was just there for the liberation of the concentration camps that's all you would need to be haunted for the rest of your life oh my gosh yeah to cope lee began to turn to alcohol but eventually she tried to lift her spirits once she found out that she was pregnant eventually leading to penrose marrying lee anthony penrose who i briefly mentioned earlier as her son was then born in 1947 and two years later the family bought a residence known as the farley farmhouse in east sussex and this house kind of becomes a mecca for artists, like surrealist artists. They get visits from all of these pretty big names pretty consistently, like Picasso goes there and Man Ray goes there all the time. So it's kind of cool that they turn their house into a gallery pretty much. But One interesting childhood for Anthony. It's like, right. oh, that's just Uncle Picasso coming Yeah, through. exactly. By 1953, Lee had officially given up photography, but she did keep in touch with all of those artists who would come and visit her at the Farley Farmhouse. Some of these friends sent Lee gifts to try and help her out of her depressions, like Man Ray, who never really fully got over his love for Lee, but once they reconnected in the, early, the late 30s, they had remained close friends afterwards. Around this time, Lee also became a chef. Apparently, cooking was another way for her to try out her hand at artistry, but in a different medium. According to a contemporary food writer named Nanette Leon, Lee did the mo- blah, blah, blah. According to a contemporary food writer named Nanette Leon, Lee did most of the cooking at their farmhouse because she disliked the country life. Oh, <laughs> which I I don't know if that says something about the fact that she grew up on a farm when she was a kid mm. and she like as she got older, just wanted to escape that in any way she could. Maybe this was kind of a reminder of that period of her life, which she wanted to leave in the past. Right. That and plus, I mean, she traveled all over the world. Yeah. So like probably being confined into one homestead. I mean, that's not really what her personality has been like up until this point. Right. She's never been a homebody. Right. According to Leon, quote, the Penroses live at the center of the world they love, that of art and artists, in London and on a Sussex farm at Muddles Green, Chittingly. Here, Lee Penrose cooks amusingly, inventively, for guests, in a large, pleasant kitchen, surrounded by Picassos, by cookbooks from all over the world, and the newest kitchen gadgets. End quote. I wonder what she would have done if she would have gotten the slap chop. <laughs> <laughs> You're just using a slap chop in a kitchen with like a million dollar Picasso painting hanging <laughs> above the sink. 
It's also crazy to me that you're cooking in a room with Picasso's in it. Like, yeah. all of the grease and smoke and stuff like that getting on these probably now priceless paintings. I wonder, I, we don't know, but if she was a smoker also. Like, if I, she was just, like, ripping darts yeah, also. no idea. I mean, everyone kind of smoked oh, at this yeah, time. Oh, yeah, everyone. So. Especially after the war. Yeah. And if she's drinking a lot, I'm sure she's probably smoking, too. Right. However, Lee Miller was never able to fully escape the horrors of the war and perhaps other parts of her past life. The trauma that she had endured as a child influenced her behavior in her young adult life, and eventually that path she chose led her to some of the most intense and catastrophic moments of human suffering in the history of the world. All of this, coupled with the fact that Roland Penrose eventually had an affair, pushed her mental health further down its steady decline. In 1955, Lee did display her photographs in New York at the Museum of Modern Art, but it was one of the few things in her later life that allowed her to express herself the way that she used to. Her husband was knighted in the late 60s, which made Lee into Lady Penrose, but eventually, in 1977, at the age of 70, Lady Lee Miller Penrose died from cancer at the farmhouse in East Sussex. After her death, her son Anthony discovered all of her work in the attic of their home and began to document and archive it all so that it could be later displayed and appreciated for what it was. And just this year, a biopic starring Kate Winslet, simply titled Lee, premiered at Toronto International Film Festival. But to conclude, I'd like to quote from an article by Paulina Letter in her UMD undergrad journal. Quote, this is all going to be a quote. In 1932, Lee Miller remarked to a journalist that she would rather, quote, take a picture than be one, end quote. Throughout her life and career, Miller sought to do just that. From being a model that was photographed and framed by others, she developed her own career as a surrealist photographer, seeking to move beyond sexist and societal restraints at the time, and worked to document terrible atrocities for the sake of history and the public. She acquired an independence, an art form that inspired the very artists she had met in Paris, and that had used her as a muse and had continued misogynistic atmospheres in their artworks, with many of them visiting her at later in life. Although Lee Miller is often overlooked, her art and her story are significant in that they serve as a reminder of the significance of change, independence, and determination. Miller demonstrates how one should frame the world in different ways shining a light on the various perspectives and aspirations that exist within it. End quote. Yeah. I thought that was a good way to wrap it up. That was a, a very good quote from that article that I read. 100%, 100% summed it up better than you know, our brains could. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to steal other people's summations of this because right. could, they say it much more beautifully than I could. Then she was a cool lady. She was pretty cool. She took cool photos. Right. Quite honestly, one of the most interesting stories when you talk about like the breadth of everything that she did, where she traveled, who she met, who she interacted with. Yeah, there's just like a... There's a, a side quest where she marries an Egyptian businessman. <laughs> Goes to Cairo. Yeah. yeah. That's not even the... And that's not even the main point. She saw, like, the... Like, she took plenty of pictures of the pyramids. Yeah. Like, that's that's crazy side quest. But, yeah, uh, truly, truly... I want to watch that movie really bad now. I don't know if it's going to be, like, in theaters anywhere here. I know it's going to get distributed in the United Kingdom, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's coming to the United States. Hopefully it'll stream somewhere. But she's American. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I I would like to see it. Everyone said that Kate Winslet did a really good job portraying Mm -hmm. her. And Kate Winslet herself said, this is the role I was made to play. So I thought Mm -hmm. that was cool. But yeah, obviously we'll be posting some of her artwork when we post about the episode. But we're not going to post all of it. So (laughs) if you want to go look up some of her artwork, it is very cool. Just Google it look it up somewhere there it's all over the world all, all over the place so Absolutely. definitely go check it out it's very cool and lee miller was definitely a very a very influential person i would say in the in the world of photography and just in the way that publications worked <laughs> like she changed vogue pretty much single-handedly into a news reporting yeah she made vogue a completely different publication yeah. when it needed to be just to well for the business to stay relevant but also just so people could have information yeah like about 
the Holocaust. Literally like, in three years. She started in 1942, and in three years, she had them posting pictures of concentration camps. That is an insane turnaround for a publication to make. Crazy. But, and her work absolutely has influenced like modern-day war photography. If you look up, for whatever reason, if you want to look up modern war photograph or photographers, you can definitely see some inspiration, like the subtleness, the capturing of the moments. Like it's definitely influenced by by Lee's work. Yeah, and, it, and like her sunset, you have to kind of have a surrealist attitude when you go into something like war photography because you're literally taking an unreality, something that most people will never experience, and you have to make it into something that's palatable. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a juxtaposition of interest there. Right. But yeah, it's a, it's a very hard thing to do, and she did it very well. So props to Lee Miller for being a cool chick. That's how I would have summed it up. <laughs> She's neat. Uh, okay, I think that's... We, we did all our plugs already, so don't need to do that again. I'm just going to plug, send us your stories again. That's pretty much all I got. Yeah, send us the stories. We truly love doing those episodes. They are a ton of fun. Yes, and it's time for the spookiest month of the year. We get five episodes in October, the way it worked out this year. So we get five episodes. So I hope you guys are ready for some spooky stuff. I don't think I'm that ready for spookiness. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I do. (laughs) Who am I kidding? Uh, All right, guys, we look forward to starting all of that spookiness for you guys next week, but we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think about it on our social medias, as Evan mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Rate and review us on iTunes and on Spotify. Uh, It does help us out. It puts us in more radars for other podcasts as recommendations and stuff like that, so it really does help us out. And just tell your friends if you like the show. Recommend us to them. All right, guys, we love you. Thank you for listening. Stay polished.